Hey, this is Wednesday 13, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is John Waite, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 491 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 491, we have three special guests, two of which are returning guests, and one is a brand new guest we were thrilled to get a chance to talk to. Joining us first on the show will be Mr. John Waite. Uh, this is the first time we've had a chance to speak with him, so we go into uh, things about his career, his time with the babies, bad English as well as his newest solo EP called Anything, a tour he just wrapped up with Rick Springfield, and a show he's going to be doing in Pittsburgh in a little, uh, just a very short while. Then joining us uh, from bands like uh, David Lee Roth, he played with the Winery Dogs, he's played with Mr. Big, uh, Mr. Billy Sheen, bass player extraordinaire, uh, is returning to his roots with his band Talus, so we're going to talk to you about their new album, and then wrapping up the show, Mr. Wednesday 13, uh, who will be coming in to do a show uh, actually this week and has a brand new album coming out. So we will talk all about Horrifier in just a little while. As I mentioned, John Waite, it's the first time I had a chance to speak with him. He was the lead singer of The Babies. is kind of where he got his name known. And The Babies obviously produced quite a lineage of other artists, including Ricky Phillips, who's with Styx. Uh, John was obviously the lead vocalist. Uh, before he moved on to a solo career, had some monster 80s hits, uh, and then teamed up with Neil Sean in uh, Bad English, and then returned to his roots to his solo career. Uh, he is doing a tour right now. He just wrapped up a tour, actually, with Rick Springfield. He's going to be coming to Irwin, Pennsylvania, to do a show at The Lamp on the 19th of November. He's got an EP out. It was released earlier this year called Anything, so we're going to play you a track from Anything. Anything you want It's the simplest of dreams But it means a lot So I'm down on my knees For the heart you've got It's a shot in the dark But I feel that spark And that's enough to make you believe. Welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Mr. John Waite. How are you doing this morning? Uh, thanks, John. I'm okay. Um, on the road. You know, woke up in a hotel, yeah. drinking coffee and um, doing interviews. Hotel know, last night. It was great. So you're you're about to embark on a string of dates with Rick Springfield and Men at Work. Um, is it fun for you as a musician to do, you know, obviously that's a, that's a bill that would you know, do a nice size capacity of venues, or do you prefer some of you know the intimacy of of a solo show where you can you know do a longer set, more of you know your album tracks, etc. Yeah, 
you know, really, it's just um, we played last night. Uh, we're in Iowa and uh, big open air thing, mm-hmm. several thousand people, and um, just came out and killed it. And they cut the short, they cut the set short because there's a big thunderstorm coming in. Mm-hmm. So we just came out, and I was just calling songs to the band, and we just had a lot of fun with it. But there's a huge catalogue of songs that we know. Sure. And in the middle, we stop and do a couple of unplugged songs. Bluebird Cafe and When I See You Smile, mm-hmm. unplugged. And uh, when you've got that kind of time, or autonomy, as they call it, when you can call the shots, right. the show is obviously going to be more fun because you're in control of it. Uh, if you're up there with a couple of other bands, you have to you know, pick your moments, just yeah. have a rigid set, really, and know what you're doing. Right. And just go out and do it and get off. But uh, the bigger shows, it's it's no holds barred. It's it's like an hour and a half of just great fun and playing songs that you really love and some obscure songs that you can call up. Yeah, um, that's obviously going to be more fun. Uh, the smaller shows we do, we have been doing quite a few unplugged shows, which are kind of semi-electric with percussion and electric mm-hmm. bass. Sure. Storytellers, because we had a record out uh, last year called Wooden Heart. That was three CDs unplugged as acoustic music. And so that was very really close to my heart because that's where I am as a songwriter, you know, as a storyteller. Sure. You have the chance to explain some songs to the audience and take questions, even in a really big venue. People shout out what this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, you explain the song, get really deep into it, and then play it. And the audience are kind of like just struck. By by that, yeah, get a, a kind of a, an intro to something that's that's deep for you, and hopefully deep for them. Um, but the Rick Springfield thing, Men at Work, is just we have we have six songs, and we were in the dressing room last night going, "What do we do? Do we do all the singles, or do we do the songs that we want to play as well as the singles?" And we limited amount of time, but it's whatever it's going to be. It's going to be kind of like very intense. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, very intense. Cause, you know, the shorter the set, you just go for it. So, um, we'll see how we get on. I mean, I, you know, every day is a new day, and, and every gig is different, and you, you kind of move into it and get get it across. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's a great problem, I guess, to have when, when you think about it. I mean, yeah, you've been doing this for how long? I mean, nineteen seventy something to twenty twenty two. You know, and and. To be, yeah. you know, in a situation where you're in a, you're in, a, in front of a large audience doing songs, you know, I think of Joan Jett as another great example. The, you know, the woman deserves to be headlining anything, and you know, she's doing a, a huge stadiums right now as part of that stadium tour. You know, but you get such a short sample size of her work, she's got to be extremely hit it and move on. Um, you know, but it's got to be nice to breathe though, and and have that time, and and not have to watch the clock on the side of the stage. Yeah, in some of those yeah. events. But you know, it depends on the situation. We've been going out a lot with Pat Bennett and Neil Trello, mm-hmm. and um, they're old friends of mine. Sure. And Neil produced one of my records, and uh, they're great people. And that's a deep show. Yeah. You know, if you if you hit me with your best shot, you, you're not going to get it. It's like almost veering into sort of like shadowy blues. Mm-hmm. It's a very intense, very intense performance for those two. And the rhythm section is great, you know, Mick and Chris. 
Um, and we enjoy doing that because that's more probably what we are. You know, we, we have songs like Bluebird Cafe, Masterpiece of Loneliness, Downtown, all these darker songs that we can throw into the set. And uh, they're glad to have us. You know, we all get on like a house fire. So we can play, you know, as long as we like, really. And, yeah. um, but that that's great. But this is more like a package tour. This is yeah. like something from the 60s. It's yeah. like you get like Smokey Robinson, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. And the cream, you know, it's like uh, it's like old cream without the duh. But um, I look at it like that. You just have to um, suck it up. Yeah, you that's just, a... it's a it's a you know you just got to do it. I mean, it's we'd rather be on the road and playing than not. And yeah. uh, Rick's a great guy. I've known him for years, so I mean, it's like it'll be fun. But we wish we were playing for longer. Yeah, yeah, it, it it harkens back. It's a great analogy you made to you know some of those like Fats Domino tours where it's like Buddy Holly and Fats Domino yeah. and those guys that yeah. you yeah. look at those bills and think God, half the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was in this tiny little venue in our city in 1960. Um, oh yeah. yeah, you know, film the film West and the film East. You know, you would you would have that, and you know, I mean, the Who going out and playing for five minutes three times a day. Mm-hmm. at the Palladium. You know, it's radio broadcast and the audience can come in, but I mean, the Who would just say, all right, we'll get you in front of people, let's go to America. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Rod Stewart, I mean, the Jeff Beck band, yeah. were playing like youth clubs. You know, it's like you look back on it, you look at the venues, and it's like, how did they pay for any of it? Yeah. But you just, the money's, the money's great these days, and you, you know, and it's a lot more civilized than it was. I sure. mean, in the old days, you'd show up and you'd be playing in barns and stuff. You'd be playing in, you know, the weirdest uh, venues that people had thrown together, and you just threw down. Yeah. There was no, you know, where's the, where's my favorite M and M's and all that stuff. It <laughs> yeah. was like you arrived and you you brought it, and if you didn't bring it, you wouldn't be coming back. And when you come up playing those kind of gigs, you straighten up and fly right it's like you know i'm not there to be complaining about they got the wrong bottle of wine backstage or the wrong sandwiches or whatever it is i'm there to bring it yeah and uh the rest of the day is travel and the moment you put a guitar in my hands and my band walk out with me it's on you know and that's why you can you just get on with it you know yeah just give you consistent power and and a good lighting yeah 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 Exactly. Yeah. Um, at, at this stage of your career, is the, is the travel, I mean, is it wear on you more than it did? I mean, I'm sure in, in the post-pandemic well, no, because, life. You know, in, in the old days, I you know, we'd all just pile into coach to try and sort of make enough money to pay the roadies and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. These days, it's either first class or I'm not getting on the plan. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more civilized. Sure. You know, I mean, you, you kind of pack accordingly you know what to bring and you know i got a shoulder bag full of books and an ipad and also you know so it's like the travel is not as wearing as it used to be and we've kind of worked it out i mean we we all fly in from different places and meet at the airport jump mm-hmm. in the van go to the hotel or go and get indian food right. discuss the set how we're going to go at it but from that point on we're driving we pile in a in a nice van and play music and we drive maybe 300 miles and you know pull over and have something to eat and 
you know, it's just great. Uh, it's the airport that will do it to you. Yeah. Or right. trying to sleep on a bus. You know, when you're trying to fall asleep on a bus and you're doing like 80 miles an hour down a freeway, that isn't really sleep. And so we don't do that. We just make sure that we can get, you know, in a van and drive those two, three hundred miles and and have fun with it. But uh, low impact. Save it all for the performance, you know. When you when you do a tour like a you know a proper you know just you as the headliner where you can kind of stretch and stretch your wings, do you like to have the band incredibly rehearsed or, or is do you prefer you know some looseness of no. calling out songs? Yeah, no. Last night we had a thunderstorm coming in. We're playing in front of about five thousand, three thousand, four. I don't know. It's a big crowd in a park, and there's a thunderstorm coming in. And as we went on stage, the guy said. 45 minutes, the storm's coming in. And we went like, what? And uh, we knew the storm was coming in, but we thought we were going to do maybe an hour plus. And people had come from all over to see it, you know? And we're thinking, 45 minutes? And uh, so I said to the band, look, follow me. We're going to start with this song, and then just follow me. I'll call them out. And we did. And we, we played for about like an hour, just under. We went to, we just played longer, but... Uh, that kind of thing where you call out a song and they all know it. Um, we're at that point where we can... I stopped the show tonight and two acoustic songs in the middle. We do a, When I See You Smile Unplugged and we do Bluebird Cafe, which is a very personal, intimate story song. Mm-hmm. And you've got thousands of people suddenly go very quiet listening to you. You, you kind of look at the audience and they tell you, oh, oh I see what I can do to disrupt it, to bring it to a different level and make it more intense. I don't want to go out there and just play hit after hit after hit and smile. You know, I want to bring something more raw to it. And uh, the audience kind of tells you, you know, it it tells you, you look at them and you go like, okay, try this. But you're trying to shake them up too. I don't want it to be like a night out with John Wett. I want it to be like an experience where the band is playing uh, what it wants to play. I mean, the only thing I say to the band is the tempos have to be completely right and you have to be completely in tune. And after that, that's why you're here, you know, because you're you. So bring you, but you got to be in time and in tune. Let's go. Yeah, that re- reminds me very much of, of a conversation I had with Nils Lofgren about touring with Bruce, you know, where it's, you know, let the energy take you where you want to go and play the songs that fit the room that night. And that's got to be a fun way to do yeah. it. You know, a little scary, probably, well, you know, but fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 every audience is different and every, uh, the ambient sound in the hall is different. The stage is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that dictates the show each show is going to be entirely different in its own way but you can't well some bands do you know the arena rock bands are playing to tapes yeah and they have a set thing they say to the audience and it's like oh god you know really but um it's that's something that people want too but uh if it was down to that i'd just stay home i love the fact that it's it's um loose I don't know how else to say. I mean, I never sing. I never sing the same song the same way twice. That's a it's a good way to think How's about that? the um yeah the one thing I'll say about you that is consistent is 
just the quality of your voice. You know, listening to the new EP, anything, it, you know, this sounds like the John Waite that I remember hearing, you know, back in the babies. Um, you know, as far as the Tony voice, you know, obviously your writing styles have matured and evolved. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Is there something that you kind of have a secret sauce to keeping the voice, you know, in check? I mean, we're not 25 anymore. No, um, no, no. That, it's, I, I, you know, I still smoke cigarettes. I mean, I, I roll my own, then it's organic tobacco, but I wake up in the morning, have a cup of black coffee, roll a cigarette, and uh, read the news. Uh, I don't even warm up. I think it comes from a place where it's blues singing, mm -hmm. and I'm obviously, at, you know, I'm not being coy. I know I've got a gift. But I don't look at my instrument, as they call it, as as something that sets me apart. I'm not trying to be a singer. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you hear a lot of singers who are supposed to be fantastic, and I think they're complete crap. There was, you know, one, one in particular that's supposed to be like the guy, and I never believed one word he ever sang. You know, it, to me, it sounds like he stands in front of the mirror trying to look moody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's a bit cruel, maybe, but it's true. And I think I come from a place where you would just find that emotional core and go for it. And um, and that's where the silver is. You know, that's where it really matters. When, you know, you look back at your career, do you think of yourself more of as a songwriter or a singer? Or, or do you not kind of think in that? Well, when I set off, I thought I was going to be more of a, a songwriter. Mm-hmm. With the babies, when we were getting that together, I was singing the songs and writing them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the the vibe in the band was that they were looking for a singer. And I think we had a singer come down one day and uh, try and sing the songs that I'd written. And I just kept stopping him and saying, no, it goes like this. And then when we were doing the demos, obviously I was singing them. And it just became very obvious very quickly I was a singer, but I didn't go into it thinking I was going to be the singer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be just the bass player and be at the back, maybe, and, and write the songs. Right. I thought that was my calling, you know. But um, without trying to sound overly modest, and I didn't have that thing about being a singer. And it's only been, it's only been fairly recently that I know that I'm a singer. And that's what I do, and that I, I write. Uh, but the two things, it's like a boxer. You know, he has a left yeah. and he has a right, and the two things make him the boxer. You couldn't just have one left and one right. You know, it's you have to have both things going on. So um, maybe if you look at me like a boxer, you'd have an idea of how I do it. You know? Yeah, and that's that's a great analogy because I mean there are some, you know, some artists out there who are really just they're paid to stand in front of the mic and sing whatever's put in front of them, you know, and yeah. you know, man, hell Elvis made a heck of a career out of doing just that. Yeah. You know? But no, there, yeah. there are people who, you know, I think really when you, when you strip away, you know, it's the song that really makes them special. You know, their voice maybe is, you know, is, is maybe less than, you know, the, the, what you were going to remember, you're going to remember, the melodies they wrote, the, the lyrics that touch you, you know, I think of Bono, for example, I mean, he's a great singer, wish I could sing that good, but, you know, when I think of his work, I think of what he said, 
how he said it more so than you know as is a yeah is a singer. There are there's certainly yeah there's certainly artists that are their message is bigger than their the vocal mm-hmm. yeah. gift. Yeah, that's quite um, a way to word but, that. But you know you look at you look at someone like Bob Dylan. Yeah, he's probably in his own way my favorite singer. I don't. Uh, and there are people that would go like, oh man, you know, this guy's better and this guy can hit these notes. I said, mm-hmm. so what? You know, it's the soulfulness and the phrasing. Yeah. And um, the commitment. Yeah. And yeah. just the brilliance of his songwriting. But his, his stance as a singer, how he just comes right up and just kills you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what singing is. If you're going to come out and be operatic, you know, and they're like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and you sing in arena rock. I mean, you know, please, next. I mean, there's a market for that. It works. People show up, they buy the T-shirt, the big fans and all that. I, I just don't, it doesn't even exist in my world. Yeah. I don't even check it out. If somebody's got a new album out like that, it's not like I go and listen to it. I couldn't care less. It just exists on a planet, you know, bullshit. I just, uh, I have no idea how they even live with themselves. But it's business, you know? And then there's the other singers like Paul Rogers and Steve Marriott and Rod Stewart, mm-hmm. even though Rod goes into some strange places with the mainstream stuff. Um, he's still Rod Stewart, you know? And, and his early work with Jeff Beck and his solo albums, they were monumental. Yeah. If he wants to have fun with it now, God bless him. But um, these singers, you know, it's just raw talent. And... Um, they're the ones that the other singers stop what they're doing when they hear it. They, mm-hmm. they're, they're checking it out. And then there's this other stuff where the guy's a singer in a band and it's like mainstream. And you think, well, in a year's time, it's nobody's going to remember that one. But yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, right now, what you consider classic rock, there's no new bands making that kind of music. So, you know, Harry Styles, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And, um, and Beyonce and all that, uh, it's not going to be, um, it's gonna, not going to be around when this generation goes. I mean, the real characters, the real songwriters, Eddie Money, you know, he was great. Yeah. Um, and Pat Benatar, you know, they, they have these pop singles that you may know them for at certain points, but they have all these depths. And when you go and see him live, it's like, Jesus Christ, you know, it's like powerful. And then uh, there's the the showbiz thing where people are just trying to sell you a T-shirt. Yeah, there are quite a few of those. Was that was that yeah. kind of pressure to be more of a commercial product? Kind of what led to the to the the end of Bad English was was maybe the yeah. pressure of, yeah. of that. Yeah, I think so. It was like you know we need singles, we need this, we need mm-hmm. an album now. And it's like get the fuck out. We've been on the road for a year, um, but everybody's in it. You know, the management. I mean, when every time management have approached me or record com- companies, they come with an idea that you're going to do a certain thing right. to make money. And if you want to do more artistic driven stuff, stuff where you're committed to some sort of art, it's not really what they want. Sure. You know, I could tell you a couple of offers I've had over the last few years. And it's like, what kind of person would sign on for that? But people are show business, you know, it's like, 
if you're playing to 5,000 people and they're going nuts and you're singing a song that you don't think is that good, um, what are you doing with your life? I mean, you know, money comes to you anyway. Um, but you can go the other route and do stuff that you think is really important for your time on this planet and, it, and it's what you're meant to do. And just the feeling of doing that is so incredible. Yeah. You know, I don't care if I'm playing to 200 people or 2,000. It's the same thing. Yeah, and, and the irony of that is that when you look at, you know, the truly great albums and the great recorded works of time isn't when someone's trying to write the hits for the studio, you know, to oh, yeah. satisfy, yeah. you know, the, the record label. It's when they take that adventurous step, you know, when, when you go off the beaten oh, yeah. path and, and chart new waters. But like so. Marvin Gaye, you know, Marvin Gaye was like this pop singer, and, it, and then suddenly it's, um, you know, what's going on? And it's like, holy Christ. And it suddenly becomes really political, and it's mm-hmm. like a, a, a scream, a soul in, in pain, uh, and there's pathos in there, and... You know, there's a there's a social statement happening. It was it just could not go along with everything else. And Stevie Wonder, one minute these are black artists, but it usually comes from them. But uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, you know, I mean, there's a there's a point with Stevie where you're listening to it, and you just think, well, there's Stevie Wonder. Who else is there? You know, he's mm-hmm. that good, and he's writing songs about the division. In America, Frontline, beautiful song. And then, you know, I mean, just just incredibly gifted. And these people are the gems, you know. Yeah. And the rest of it is, is people riding on their coattails, you know. It's, uh, I hope, you know, I hope that there is another generation of those kind of songwriters coming up because it does matter. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think the, the, proliferation of tribute bands out there to these types of artists you know kind of speaks volumes that you know when, yeah. you know people tend to do this because that music is so appreciated in, in lieu of yeah. taking the time to try to write their own so john i want to thank you so much again the new ep is available now um you're going to be rolling into Irwin to do a show in november on the 19th thankfully we get the full john wade experience and you can uh uh, call out songs and in, in, uh, based on our reaction that night. So it'd be a pleasure to see you. Wish you all the best. Great tour with uh, Men at well, Work thanks. and Rick Springfield. It's been an absolute pleasure yeah. talking to you, man. Oh, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very much. Cool. Uh, stay well, stay safe, and I'll see you down the road. All right, a big thank you to Mr. John Wade again. He'll be at the Lamp Theater in Irwin, Pennsylvania on the 19th of November. You can visit his website to order anything or check it out on streaming services. Uh, to see what you think. A a great career worth of music and an incredible singer even to this day. Uh, uh, Almost ageless. Uh, We're going to turn our attention now to Billy Sheen, who has been on the show before. He's been with the Winery Dogs. He still is with the Winery Dogs. Uh, We're anticipating a new album next year. Uh, Long-time basis of Mr. Big since their inception. I played with uh, David Lee Roth. But where he got to start uh, most notably was with Talis, a band out of Buffalo who had done some pretty big tours, uh, but never quite broke through the level of megastardom that some of the other acts did before he was tapped to go work with David Lee Roth. So they did a reunion, 
put out a new album called 1985, which is available now. It was just released a few days ago. Uh, Billy talks about the band's history, the loss the band has suffered, uh, and why it was so special to do this album at this time. So without further ado. City Rocks. We have on the line Billy Sheehan. How you doing, Billy? Doing great. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. You're going to be releasing here in just a couple weeks, um, for many, a long-awaited uh, Talus record. You know, many of us grew up with kind of knowing the, kind of the myth of Talus. Um, maybe only kind of caught your name when, when you joined on with Dave uh, for that. But can you talk a little bit about how you know, in 2021, you guys got back together and kind of rekindled this musical collaboration at this point? Sure thing. Yeah, we uh, actually a few years earlier than that, we did a one show with this lineup of Talos. There's been about nine lineups actually through the years since about 1971. Uh, so this this was the final version of Talos that we had for the last couple of years. Phil Merrill on vocals, Mark Miller on drums, myself, and then we had uh, initially Mitch Perry on guitar and then Johnny Angel. Uh, and then that took us up to 1985 when I left. So uh, I've been in touch with these guys over the years, and we just uh, someone offered us an uh, opportunity to play at uh, a charity show just for, just for old time's sake. And mm-hmm. so we got together. We had a blast rehearsing the material again. Uh, that would be in Rochester, New York. Talos is basically Buffalo base, but this last version of Talos, two of the guys were from Rochester. <laughs> so we um, we went there, rehearsed up, went, did the show. It was a blast. It was packed. People went out of their minds. It was a riot. Great to see a lot of old friends. People flew in from all over the place to see the show, too, and it was really a great night. So we thought, hey, we could play some more. So we did and did a bunch of gigs in New York City, uh, Buffalo and Rochester, of course, Albany, New York. A lot of our old stomping grounds in the Northeast. There, uh, it'd be nice to do a one down in Pittsburgh. I'm sure. But, Absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll discuss that later. But uh, we used to play a place called Stage One in uh, Greensburg, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, it was a little club, and always always had a blast there. So anyway, we thought, you know, we're all playing these songs that have never really been properly recorded. Uh, why don't we hit the hit the red button and record them? So it was that simple. Uh, we. Uh, got together in Mark Miller's house. He's a drummer, and he uh, built his own house by hand. He's an architect and designer now. He's quite talented at that, uh, to say the least. And uh, so we got uh, we set up in his living room, and uh, we played. And uh, it was a pretty easy process and actually quite, quite enjoyable. Uh, no drama, no, uh, no, uh, no problems, uh, a lot of fun, great food, great people hanging out, playing the old songs, and... Uh, Sure enough, we got them all down as we had intended. We had two uh, ways to go on this. Uh, either 
bring everything up to date and modernize it all and right. slick up the uh, songs, uh, uh, like uh, fix up lyrics and do changes, or get in a time machine and you know, go back to 1985 when uh, music was king all over the country. And uh, there's millions of bands and hundreds of shows. And so we just said, let's get in the time machine and do it. So that's hence the title, 1985. Did you use... Similar a similar rig to what you personally played on in, in 1985. Obviously, your rig has has evolved over the years, but you know, did you kind of go back to some of those old amps and P bass? Absolutely, yeah. We uh, um, have set up. I'm in my home studio now. It's basically there's a photo of me from about 1984 on the wall with this giant rack of gear and big, huge JBL speaker cabinets. And right underneath it is almost the exact same rack, uh, full of gear that I used back in the day. And, uh, we got a pretty, um, authentic version of, uh, how, how it used to be. And our, our engineer, uh, Russ McKay, who did the mixing, he used to come see us play. Mm-hmm. He's a Canadian. He's in Toronto. We used to play in Canada all the time. So he had a really good handle on what he sounded like out front. So he was, uh, Really instrumental in making things sound the way we, the way we were, the way we used to be, and uh, he did a wonderful job with that. But yeah, it's pretty pretty authentic as to, as to what we did. Yeah, that, that's good. You were able to get you know the same engineer because that was one of one of the things I was thinking. If you were to work with you know some you know kind of upstart engineer in the music industry today, you might be really trying to go against the grain of what's in their DNA, you know, with, with Pro Tools and, and you know, the ability. To- yeah, it was all. That's very true. He was, uh, Russ was uh, there uh, at a lot of gigs, and he'd worked a lot with Phil Merrill in more recent years as well. So he was tuned into what we did and what we sounded like and how it all went. And it was really enjoyable working with him, too, telling the stories of the old days. He got a great handle on it. Was it a little bit easier at this point in your careers? And, and you know, you all are you know, of a certain age where you're not necessarily, you know, some upstart band trying to make, you know, get a record label at this point. You know, you're making music obviously more for the love of, and the friendship of the band's legacy and and the people in the band. It's a little bit easier at this point to kind of do that a little more enjoyable than, you know, if you had made this album in 1985 with the pressures of trying to, you know, please a record label and et cetera. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, there was a time. Well, back then we were we were struggling. Uh, we were doing great, and we uh, did great business everywhere, and we were paying the bills and all that. Uh, we've gotten up to a point where we got signed by uh, a gentleman named uh, Danny Goldberg with Gold Mountain Records. He later went on to, to manage Nirvana. He's quite a big name in the record mm-hmm. business, music entertainment business. Um, and uh, then we got signed by the William Morris Agency, which put us on tour with Inbay. And so things were looking good, but still it was a struggle. Sure. And we had a couple of uh, uh, situations. They uh, changed the drinking age uh, from 18 to 21, which cut the bar business in half. Yeah. So a lot of places shut down. A lot of places started, stopped having bands. Uh, they tried to like uh, do a little barricade for the 18 18- uh, an underage group and the 21 and over that didn't work at all so our business uh, was was looking uh, like it was going to 
be impacted quite heavily by this. Mm-hmm. And we had three or four road crew guys, trucks, sound lights, uh, you know, hotels, everything. We're all financed by ourselves. There's no record that we're yeah. paying for anything or, or, or any such uh, situation. So uh, it, we knew it was going to be a big struggle. And uh, so I, I, I got the call in 85 from uh, Dave Roth's office and, uh, we went to start the Ingve tour in Los Angeles. So I had a few days off in LA before uh, we started and I had a meeting with them. And, uh, he basically asked me to, you know, let's start a band together. Let's find a guitarist and drummer and we'll start a band. I said, okay. Uh, but I was sworn to secrecy. So I couldn't say anything mm-hmm. to the band or the guys in Dallas about the fact that, Oh, by the way, when this tour is over, uh, I'm leaving, you know? So uh, I was, it was a tough time for me because I love that band. I love those guys. Uh, we worked uh, very hard. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into it. But this was an opportunity I just couldn't uh, uh, give up on. So the pressure at that time was uh, was immense, really, because uh, we all know you can you can do get a record deal and do a record and put it out. It doesn't. There's no guarantee anybody's going to buy it or it's going to go anywhere. Or mm-hmm. the guy who who signed you to the label got fired, and now you're you're. Uh, you're, you're lost uh, business-wise in, uh, in, within the label. All kinds of things can happen. There's a whole encyclopedia you could write about uh, all the all the things that can go wrong, <laughs> even even if you get signed and even if things seem to be going right. So uh, that was a lot of pressure on everybody. So when I when I went to L.A., uh, it was great relief for me to just be able to uh, relax and not worry about. Uh, your usual day-to-day things that sure. were a constant source of pressure. You know, where the truck broke down or whether the crew was, uh, got there on time or where the club owner had a fight with the uh, tour manager or whatever. Yeah. Those, those days were gone and over, and it, it was a great relief for me. But I still do look back uh, quite nostalgic. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that kind of pressure was sometimes was also a good thing because it pushed you harder. And uh, I think I owe a lot of uh, my success that I'm very grateful for. I owe a lot of it to working under immense pressure for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've not shied away from that in your career. When when you got the call from Dave, I mean, obviously, your bass playing, you know, at least to a, a novice listener, not that similar to Michael Anthony's um you know, in the style which you played in Talus, uh, and even the Niacin records, you know, when you listen to those, you, you know, your playing is very unique. Um, you know, there, there's very few bass players I can think of offhand where I say, you know, there's one that I can instantly pick out, but you were certainly in, a, in that group. Um, did you have any reservations or, or conversations with Dave about the way you approached the instrument and how that would fit in what he was envisioning the sound of that band was going to be like? No, he chose me, wanted me, saw me play many times. He came out to our first show with Ingve in L.A., and then uh, he flew out to New York, came to see me again. I remember Dave and Eddie coming to a show in in the Talus back in about 1981 or two, because he, he saw me play when Talus opened for Van Halen in mm-hmm. 1980. And they, every time they come through town in Buffalo, they usually come out to see us. And I remember this one giant club, and way in the back was another bar behind glass. And Dave and Eddie were sitting right there watching me the whole <laughs> show. So he knew everything I was about, and that's what he wanted. So he called me, and uh, 
it's funny that uh, it's kind of a funny question because uh, uh, why would he hire me to to have me do something else? Sure, no, that that's perfectly perfectly reasonable. Yeah, but you, the um, you know the uh, the music you made together uh, phenomenal. You know, I still consider Eden and Smile one of the the, the best records of, of that period of music. Um, you know, and uh, even you know you work on Skyscraper before you left the band. Um, fantastic stuff with the when Mr. Big came along. Um, you know, that was another one where I, th- I think you know I remember reading about that in like Guitar for the Practicing Musician or something, hearing about this band coming or it might have been Metal Edge or whatever magazine was at the time. Kind of reading that lineup and thinking, oh my God. This is going to be amazing, and then you, you you see that a lot in bands where you you kind of see a, a roster of people in a band and think this is just going to make my head explode. But then when you hear it, it doesn't always deliver. But remember seeing Addicted to That Rush hit MTV and just finally hearing a band that exceeded the expectation I had in my own head for that was was that something that um you know you guys you know kind of when you were formulating what the band was going to be about, you know, or was it just a very natural evolution of the types of players you were that that's the way that came out with such a ferocious record? Well, we, um, it's a very common question for people to, to ask, you know, did you, you know, plan and figure out and sit down and plot and, and, do a PowerPoint presentation and mm-hmm. figure out how this was going to work. And it just is never, ever like that in any band I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. You get, you get guys that, that, uh, you, you appreciate them. They appreciate you. You get together in a room, you start writing and bang, and this is what we got. So, uh, yeah, there was no, no, uh, uh, calculation scheming or, uh, uh, marketing research or anything right. like that. We were together in a room. We started writing. Uh, the first song we wrote was Anything for You off the first record, which was a ballad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all had uh, uh, misconstrued reputations uh, as far as what we did and uh, how we played. Uh, Paul, being a Pittsburgh na- native, yeah. was known for being a shred guy, but he knew a, he knew every Beatles song. He knew every Stone song. He knew every... He knew hundreds of songs. He used to come see Talos play at the club I mentioned earlier. And uh, he, he knew uh, our songs. He knew the copy tunes we did for years. So he was a real song guy. Uh, Eric uh, was just a spectacular singer. He worked with Neil Sean, worked with a lot of people. Uh, he was uh, automatically the type of singer I wanted. Uh, uh, and Pat also just a super finesse, great drummer that mm-hmm. sang his ass off. So, uh, you know, I found these three guys, uh, put them together in a room, and uh, we uh, we got what we intended to get. But it wasn't any kind of a calculation or, or uh, no slide rules uh, or, yeah. or uh, legal consultation was involved in any of it. And and like I said, even even uh, any band I've ever put together was just uh, uh, this guy plays uh, pretty cool. I'd like to play with him. Here we go. And uh, that's what happened with uh, Mr. Big. So I found, I already had Pat and I already had Paul. And then when I found Eric and brought him, that was a, we, we, right, even in the first couple of writing sessions, we wrote most of the first record. 
and then uh, live when we later on we perform live it was kind of automatic happened yeah. perfectly without uh, anybody having to discuss anything so yeah. we were very pleased with it yeah i mean it's certainly you know one of those situations where you know the sum of the parts you know really you guys even blew that out you know of, of the expectations you know from a fan standpoint I, you know like i said i had such expectations just reading the lineup on paper you know here's what you know here's what's coming and then hearing i was like whoa you know that's even more than i expected so uh it was it's you know, great I'm glad to hear. great stuff um with with the um talus obviously phil passed away um and and you guys did you know an amazing tribute um you know at the end of the record um is there much you know i I guess maybe one of the things was there much in the vault you know that there may be future talus releases even you know some archive type stuff or is this kind of the the end of the chapter yeah we're gonna we're going to uh finally get everything up on all the streaming services and i've got a massive archive of everything i've done with everybody uh and uh, there's a there's tons of talus stuff in there that has never been heard things of that nature so we'll we'll put it all together at some point um uh, phil was a quite a prolific writer too and there's a lot of his material that uh i think possibly his sons may compile together or put out a lot mm-hmm. of things that uh, are may be difficult to find or aren't available or out of print or whatever. So uh, there'll be uh, plenty more from Phil, rightfully so. He was really a great talent, a wonderful guy, one of the best. Uh, he had absolutely no trace of lead singer's disease. He was just a nice, sweet, wonderful, easygoing, easy to work with, always delivered, performed uh, with every bit of energy he had, always at every show. And uh, we miss him terribly. Uh, he... Uh, he sang the uh, record in Toronto uh, while I was here in Nashville, where I live now. And um, on our laptops, we had uh, FaceTime or Zoom mm-hmm. as the talkback mic in the studio. And then on my music computer, we had a software called Audio Movers, which allowed me to listen to the recording console in Toronto in real time okay. in my home. I still don't know how they do it yeah. with no delay. I, I don't. I just don't understand how that works. But um, so uh, it was quite amazing watching him in Toronto uh, sing and just be just awesome and hit the hit the notes. And we had a wonderful time recording that again with Russ McKay, our engineer. Uh, but even now, it looks even more impressive to me because at the time we didn't know how bad mm-hmm. his health situation was, but he did. And so with that on his shoulders, he stepped up to that mic and delivered. I don't know if I could have done that. You know, yeah, I don't know if I could have given that the best performance, uh, knowing that something was uh, coming down the road that was not very good. But he yeah. did, and so I'm even more impressed when I found out later that he did know uh, while we were recording that it was not looking good. And at, at the end, unfortunately, a few weeks after we finished, uh, we lost him, and uh, it was uh, quite a blow to many, many people. He's he's loved by a lot of people. Uh, he, he, he made friends everywhere. He was uh, very highly regarded. It's just a great talent and a wonderful guy. So, so this record initially started out as uh, kind of a real tribute to 1985, and the bands, and the crowds, and the amazing times we all had back then. It was incredible. But it's kind of morphed over into a little bit more of a uh, 
uh, a tribute to Phil's legacy. Yeah. And I'm glad about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the timing of, of doing this, you know, I guess in hindsight, could not have been better. You know, had you know, we all, you know, your schedule's a little too busy. We'll put this off a year. Who knows? Maybe this doesn't get made. Um, you know, he he managed to hang on, and that I think a blessing. You know, in a really awesome thing for the fans. You know, obviously for you as musicians and and, and friends to get a chance to get back and work with him. Uh, you know, was, was such a blessing. Yeah, so I, think, I agree. You know, in all all the way around. You know, I think a wonderful wonderful thing that this happened so billy i want to thank you so much for your time again the album will be out in september you've got vinyl and all that good stuff we'll share all the links uh for that and and hopefully we'll see you in pittsburgh in one band or another i know you've always got a lot of irons in the fire so hopefully we'll see you before too long excellent i hope it's it's uh very soon i always love pittsburgh i still got a million friends there and uh, i'm sure i'll be coming through and maybe we'll say be able to say hello all right, a big thank you to Mr. Billy Sheehan again. 1985 from Talis is available now. So awesome that they had an opportunity to record that album uh, when they did. You know, a time of loss, but a great time capsule to remember uh, the band, a critically underrated band, and, and great to see that material make it to the world. I turn our attention now to a gentleman. Uh, been a big fan of for a long time really i think this is the first time i heard of mr wednesday 13 wednesday obviously had formed the the murder dolls with joey jordanson um who sadly passed away last year uh wednesday had a successful career obviously joey was very busy with slipknot and wednesday carved out a very nice solo career for himself uh with with many many solo albums great stuff uh, he's releasing a new album on october 7th called Horrifier, uh, which I think is a, is kind of a nice return to some of his earlier work, and is also touring of uh, a 20th anniversary tour, which will be coming into Pittsburgh on the 28th of September. So I only have a few days, depending on when you download this, he will be at the Craft House Stage and Grill. So you want to get out and check that show out. A fantastic musician, great stuff. So to play you a little bit of stuff from Horrifier, we'll get into that interview with Wednesday.
Sahidias! All right, ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome the Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Wednesday 13. How are you doing, Wednesday? Doing great. Doing great. You are just about set to release a new album. Uh, this will be, by my count, your ninth album, Horrifier. Um, this one, to me, sounds a little more like some of your earlier solo material. Mm-hmm. Is that Was that a direction you kind of took, or am, or am I even interpreting the direction in your No, I, I think you're right. Uh, that's the way I feel about it, um, just because, you know, um, with this with this recording and this this uh i wrote a lot of the guitar work uh on this album and i haven't did that in the past couple albums i mainly just stuck to the lyrics so uh, it's like mm-hmm. the first album that i was actually playing guitar to some of the stuff like like the song hideous and good day to be a bad guy were like two of the first songs i wrote and i was like man this sounds like some of the earlier stuff uh which kind of set up the, the bar for the whole thing so uh i think because just because i did play a little bit of guitar and write some of that stuff that's why it has that sound toward the first couple of records because at that time i was writing everything completely you know so um so yeah i think you picked up on that good was it was that kind of a, a necessity because you were doing a lot of this during i'm assuming during the lockdown era of you know, our history mm-hmm. or, or was that just a, a conscious decision to say, hey, you know, I've got some ideas in my head. I want to bang these out myself. Well, this this record, um, you know, was a little different. Like the past uh, the past two albums we did, the Necrophase and Condolences record, uh, our drummer, Kyle, uh, was contributing to a lot of the writing and material and stuff. And uh, he's no longer in the band with us. So this time it was literally just. Uh, me and my guitarist Ramon trying to write the bulk of the material so I knew I had to step it back up again and play but that wasn't a bad thing at all like I, I enjoyed it it was fun it, it came naturally and um, and I think that maybe that's what this needed you know uh, you know maybe a return back to some of the older sound because some fans have, have been following us and 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 they like the new direction and everything but everybody always likes a little bit of that flavor from the past and I think this album will give them that yeah, it is kind of funny how uh, people always want it to sound like, like the first album or two. You know, that's it's, I don't know if that's just a ingrained in the way we consume music that we want artists to sound. We want them to grow and mature, but we want them to sound the same at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you this is your first album with, with uh, Napalm Records. You moved from the last two, I believe, on Nuclear Blast. Do did yeah. the label have much influence in in the sound, or did they just kind of sign you and say, you know, just you be you, give us what you have? For me, that's the case. I think you know we've all heard horror stories of bands that had the labels try to change them and mm-hmm. do this kind of stuff. But I think with what what we do, what I do, is just been a I think you get it, you know, you're, you're, you're signing it for that sole reason, you know, like we don't, right. they don't want to change the formula. So I've never, ever had that experience with, with any label, even from Roadrunner back in the day, they just, they just kind of said, all right, well, this is why we want you guys. So I don't think they wanted us to change. Uh, but again, I've never been on the label uh, longer than a couple of years for them. to ever try to start doing that. So <laughs> who knows if I had been on a label for 10 years or something, maybe they would have went, Hey, why don't you try this? But, uh, in these early stages, they just pretty much let me let me do uh, what I do. But uh, but Napalm has been great. I mean, they've been they've. I don't think I've did this much press for an album since my 
first album on Roadrunner or Murder Dolls with Roadrunner. Like it's just so they've got their press department working hard and, and doing a lot of stuff. And that's that's what we need them to do. You know, I mean, I know how to tour. I know how to make the music. I don't know how to get the records into people's hands and get the press. So so we're, yeah. we're working as a team here. So it's working out. Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it takes kind of a village t- to do that. Um, you've had a lot of things. Obviously, the pandemic affected everyone. Mm-hmm. You've had some personal things going on with the loss of, of some family members. We love, you know, the world lost Joey. Um, did th- that kind of creep into to any of your lyrics, or, or you know, do you kind of look at your lyrical writing as sort of a just more of a creative outlet in that regard? Um- for the most part, I try to keep my lyrics and my personal life completely separate. And I like to tell stories and, uh, but the pandemic definitely uh, affected, you know, uh, me this time. I affected everybody, right? Had a, didn't have a great time, but I had a lot of, you know, deaths within my, my family and my, my friends. Uh, there's a lot of people passed away and ironically has nothing to do with COVID. No, mm-hmm. nobody passed away from COVID. It was just accidents or just sudden, you know, like my mom, uh, Joey, Alexi from Children of Bodom as well as all within just a year, uh, you know. So uh, the very last track on Horrifier, the other side, I dedicated that song to my to my mom and Joey. Um, so I did get to to write a personal song. But uh, and those are always the hardest ones to write for me. or not, Maybe not the hardest ones to write the hardest ones for me to accept and go is that good enough or are they going to yeah. laugh at us is it too is it too different um but uh it turned out great and i'm i'm super happy with it and uh i don't get to do it that often i don't get to write a personal song so um i think there's probably maybe three or four in my catalog right now that i can think of that are personal and this will be a, another one to go up against those do you, do you find those kind of songs harder to do live when, when you're kind of singing about you as opposed to you know kind of the persona yeah uh that's usually why we don't ever play those songs live yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean i mean we have but uh yeah i mean it, it gets a little you know a little weird like you know like we're doing this tour right now and uh we have a section in the show where that, that i talk about joey and dedicated to joey and we play a couple murdered all songs and you know there's there's nights i can do it fine and there's nights i get choked up about it and i still do it's just it's just it never i never know what it's going to be like and the audience always their their reaction always changes it as well so yeah so yeah man it's uh you know it's uh but it's also it's not a bad it's a it's a healing thing it's it's yeah like it's it's great for me because i didn't get to uh, you know it happened during the pandemic i didn't get to see anybody i didn't get so it's kind of a good thing to go out and i get to celebrate you know, his life and, and because it's part of my history, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here without that guy. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly helped kind of solidify you as a front man. And then as a solo artist, I think it, you know, certainly probably Absolutely. brought the world to your door. Um, it, and I have to say, it's very reassuring to hear, you know, listening to all of your albums throughout your career that not a lot of these are, are about your actual life, you know, when you listen to the lyrics right. of some of these, right. um, when, when you, uh, approach writing you know i I know you've you've got return to haddonfield for example and and a song by christine on this album do you kind of when you're putting together songs do you is just i happened to watch one of those a couple weeks ago and i'm going to kind of go in that direction lyrically or do you give you know what's the thought process that goes into that it's it's different for every song 
um, Christine was one that uh, actually I had music kind of written for it. I was looking through like one of my old like demos and I found a song listed as Christine, but it had no lyrics and it just kind of had sort of the basic idea of it. And I was like, I totally forgot about this. It was on my list of songs to write was I had three songs on my bucket list to write about one was being the merciless from flash Gordon, which I did mm-hmm. on my 2013 record. Uh, and the other two was to write a song about Christine and my other bucket list song is to write a song about the robot from uh, RoboCop, not RoboCop, but the other robot Ed 209 that shoots okay. the guy. You know, that was my three just weird. <laughs> just I put on a list of songs to write. So Christine kind of had the idea for it there. So that's how that one came about. Just thinking of weird movies to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Return to Haddonfield. Literally, I was playing guitar, uh, writing that song and was watching. It was right on Halloween and all the Halloween movies were on cable, just nonstop back to back. And I love the first two. They're my favorite. I'd already wrote a song, Haddonfield, my second album. So this I was like, I don't, can I write another Halloween song? Do I want to do it? And I went, what if I make it a sequel? Like it's part two to that yeah. song. And so that's why it's called Return to Haddonfield. So if you're familiar with my first one, it'll make even more sense to you. But you don't have to know the other one to, to like this one. Uh, but again, I just, I've been watching that Halloween film since it came out as a kid. And it's still just as good to me. Um, I'm not necessarily into all the newer sequels and stuff as much but uh with that movie and just it just always has a special place in it for me so i was literally writing the song and looked over on my tv and went all right this is easy <laughs> lyrics yeah. done yeah it's interesting to hear you mention about the sequels i have to admit some trepidation about halloween ends um yeah a totally well related question but off the topic of music your thoughts on halloween three take it or leave it is that a, a is that one oh, you enjoy i not only am i going to take it our next video, you're going to see how much I love it because that's the next concept for the the good day to be a bad guy will be out October 5th. And we're basically doing the Silver Shamrock commercial. We're in the television. The kids are going to put the mask on and we're going to melt their brains. Yeah. Uh, so now to answer the, but honestly, when I first saw that movie, like just about everybody back in the day, you're like, what, the f- what is this? Where's yeah. Michael Meyer? <laughs> What's going on? So I don't know if I necessarily appreciated it. I did. I always found it weird with that theme song. And I always thought those masks were weird, but I don't think I really got it till I got older. Um, and now I just watch it as a completely different kind of movie. I don't consider it the Halloween, even though it's Halloween three, it's, it's just such a weird movie. Uh, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. So I, again, that's, uh, another one of my favorites. And I think it's just one of those ones that just over time it, it, it aged, it aged well. And, uh, and most people that hated it, I know a lot of them like it now. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it was for me personally. It was you know one of those blockbuster runs where you come home with four or five VHS for just a you know October weekend. You know, kind of cramming yep. these in, and you put it in, and I'm like, you know, you're like 15 minutes in, you're like something's got to give. 20 minutes in, you're like, <laughs> where is this? You know, just one of those things. Had it been called something else, or you yeah. Know, you know, and we didn't have the social media at the time, you know, when you saw it, when I saw it, to really even know what the no, heck we was had going no, on. We had just, no you know. idea. We're like, what is going on? Why is it just, it was, it was slow. It was slow. But I guess, you know, again, when it gets to the good parts, the parts yeah. are great. Like I seeing a kid's melt and a snake and yeah. crickets and bugs pouring out. I'm like, that's 
it's pretty genius. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does hold up well, and I think it's got a bit of a cult classic, you know, even on yeah. its own. So fantastic. Now you're doing, uh, you know, live dates. Now you're going to be coming into Pittsburgh next Wednesday on the 28th, kind of doing a, a celebration of 20 years. You mentioned, you know, the the part of the murder dolls. Um, do you kind of hit all the albums in your solo career on the set list, or just kind of a, a sprinkling over time? We try to cover it list. Um, I think the only record that I don't play a song off of, I believe, is actually, yeah, is the my calling all corpses record. Um, and and it's not that uh, for some reason, and I, I don't hate that record. It's just my least favorite album that I did, mm-hmm. and though there's a lot of songs on it that I like, but I just didn't feel like it fit in with with uh with this set list so i think that's the only record i don't play a song off of we play something off every album from from uh from the first murder dolls to the second murder dolls to all of my solo albums and we're also playing the the uh the three new songs off the uh the three upcoming uh hideous insides out and the new one good day to be a bad guy we play it we play all of those you're really getting a kind of a uh, a whole panorama the yeah. song, the latest single that, that you guys dropped, Inside Out. I have to admit, when I listen to it, I'm like, what are you guys tuned to there? That is, is so heavy. <laughs> it, it almost at first, I, I honestly thought, you know, this sounds like that phenomenon when you used to to drop a forty five on your record player and forget to yeah. speed because it's yes. so dark. Um, are are you guys tuned to like a low A or something on that? No, it's all the same tuning. We uh, same tuning. I used since my first album is uh just drop c tuning okay um but that song just it's so it's so heavy i it's i i get exactly what you're saying it sounds like a monster and then you got the weird guitar tones it's like it's just yeah. it's it, when i first heard it, i was like how am i going to write lyrics over this like what is it but what i did and maybe this will make sense to you uh because to me like you know i've always admitted all my all my influences are, you know, Alice Cooper, Kiss, Wasp, mm-hmm. Twisted Sister, all those bands had the image. Um, but all of those bands, no matter what, they had like, for example, Twisted Sister had their hits. We're not going to take it. Rock, uh, you know, I want to rock. But when they did Captain Howdy, when I first heard that, that was so heavy and dark to me. Yeah. And the same thing when Kiss did God of Thunder. I'm like, is this the same band? Like what is it? Just it was just heavy like that. So that was sort of my my approach to this song. I was like, all right, well, this is kind of like our version of when when that when those bands did that. Yeah, and I, I w- that's you know lyrically, I just kind of went in that route, uh, and it and it worked out. I would have bet the farm you were going to say "Burn in Hell" from Twisted Sister, but well, yeah. Captain Howdy, yeah, you're well, right. Yeah, Captain yeah. Howdy, "Burn in Hell." Those last three songs on side one of that album, yeah, get dark. You know, and that's what I, that's what I was like, well, that's kind of our version of that. If you want to compare it to something. Mission accomplished. Well, Wednesday, I want to thank you so much. You're going to be in town on the 28th craft house. You're going to be touring all over the U S. So it'd be a a great time to see ironically on a Wednesday. We'll take that coincidence um, (laughs) and we'll see you next week, man. Awesome, man. We'll see you then. All right. That about wraps up this episode of iron city rocks. Again, horrifier from Wednesday 13 will be available on October 7th. He will be at the Craft House in Pittsburgh to do a show on the 20th of September. So only a few days to get ready for that one. John Waite will be in Irwin on November 19th. That'll be 
almost Thanksgiving, but blink your eye, it'll be Thanksgiving. Uh, and he's got a new EP out called Anything, which is available now. And also, again, Mr. Billy Sheehan, uh, Talus 1985, was available. It was released on the 22nd of September. So by the time this makes it to your ears, you can go get that album and check it out. Really, really a great tribute uh, to a friend there. So I invite you to check that out. Also, ironcityrocks.com. All the social medias are forward slash Iron City Rocks or at Iron City Rocks. Check us out. Always giving away tickets, uh, stuff with shows, letting you know when things are coming, letting you know uh, what artists are coming to town, showing you photos from the shows. So we invite you to check those out. We really appreciate it. IronCityRocks at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of us, suggest an artist, tell us you're tired of an artist, suggest a band we've never heard of, say, hey, why don't you have so-and-so back? Loved when you had them on the last time. Let us know what you think. We would appreciate it and appreciate the uh, time you take to do that. We also very much appreciate the time you take to listen. So until next time, thank you. <laughs>